the Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey is a seven-figure developer and principal engineer for Google Cloud. Welcome, Kelsey. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for adding that extra digit that it took a while to earn that, so I appreciate it. Sure, sure. Um, Well, would you, um, before we kind of get started into the meat of things, would you give our audience like a little bit of an introduction to yourself? Uh, you know, like tell them how you got started in the industry. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people who, you know, self-proclaimed, self-taught, uh, I guess, software engineer, technologist, started my career system administration, and then kind of made the pivot like so many do into software engineering. Lots of open source work. A lot of product work, and most people may know me from my latest endeavors around Kubernetes and cloud. Okay. Um, and then, so what what are you working on these days? These days, uh, the bulk of my work internally around product stuff for Google Cloud is mainly around serverless technologies, right? So a lot of us, you know, if you have any experience with serverless, you may be thinking like functions, event architectures, and there's some of that, you know, there's cloud functions, you know, things I've worked on in the past are like go support for cloud functions. But now we have a lot more products around like workflows and event arc using cloud events to map things around. But more importantly, a lot of the work I'm trying to do is we made a big step from VMs to something like Kubernetes, right? Package your app in a container and then use a declarative model to help determine how it should run. But what's the next logical step? So a lot of my work is Imagine a world in the serverless world where we solve the serverless compute problem where you give us your container, your application, and we run it multi-regional, globally, um, with no restrictions. So there's a lot of work to get to that point because today you have to make a bunch of trails in the serverless world, cold stars, type of protocols that are supported. We're really working to make that go away. And you've also been speaking a lot recently about GitOps and Kubernetes and, and serverless, as you mentioned, and infrastructure as data. I spent a lot of the morning watching some of your, your past presentations for, for GitOps in particular and, and wanted to know if maybe you could step into that a little bit and, and just start with a brief introduction of what GitOps is. Yeah, so I think this GitOps kind of pattern. So it's funny, if you're a software developer, you already know what GitOps is about, right? <laughs> you write some code, you check it into version control. And typically you'll tag a release and then that release will go through some chain to turn it into something that's deployable. In the GitOps world, the thing we typically check in is closer to the final artifact than source code is, right? Most people don't deploy raw source code to a server and then the server does the build. We don't really do that. We package it first. In the GitOps model, we typically are talking about you know, developer configurations or operations configs, like, hey, I need this app running in this way with a load balancer with this config. You can imagine articulating a lot of our infrastructure concerns in this model. So when people talk about GitOps, I think it was fair to say that before GitOps, a lot of people would like 
do config as code where we would write, write a bunch of, I call them scripts, even though I used to work at Puppet Labs. Uh, we build these modules to try to automate our infrastructure, but we're really writing a lot of imperative code. And sometimes we did check that stuff in, but once we checked it in, we needed other tools to turn those into modules, deploy them to something like Puppet, Chef, or Ansible. And then those tools would take off and do the change. What we're talking about with GitOps is we're actually shifting, you know, shifting left quite a bit. We're not writing code as much anymore in the GitOps model. It's all declarative config. Some people call it YAML files. And in that world, the thing we want the system to do is really close to that final thing we check in. So this is why it's called GitOps, because Git is kind of the source of truth for the most, the majority of our operations. You combine that with tools like Kubernetes. So in order for this to work, you need something on the other side that understands how to take a declare config and actually turn it into something real. And that's where this whole kind of GitOps workflow comes from. Well, YAML is how we know that we're in a cloud native world, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's the mysterious thing about this whole cloud native thing that it's most of these patterns people discovered outside of the cloud. And it's really more of like post-cloud error. What did we learn? And there's a lot of things that I think we try to serialize into this concept called cloud native, but turns out most of it works on-prem. Okay. And we're mostly background in, in .NET development. A lot of JavaScript these days in, in single page applications, uh, React and Angular, et cetera. But what we're talking about here isn't the, like you said, we're not deploying the, the DLLs. We're not deploying the artifacts that we're, we're previously compiling, right? We're, we're packaging up and delivering maybe a Docker file or, or, or a Docker image. Is that more accurate or, or is that a way to think about it? Or, or how would you better describe that? Yeah, so I think that's kind of close, right? If you're a software developer working in some of the language environments that you're talking about, think about the relationship between or the contract between you and the infrastructure. Depending on what type of tools you're using, a developer will go build one of these apps and maybe, let's say, simplify it a little bit and you create an EXE. Well, a lot of times that EXE may not include the actual runtime that's on the other side, whether that's the CLR or a certain version that you're running. So the contract is like, well, is the server in the proper configuration to take my executable and run it properly. Then there's other factors like, uh, is there the configuration correctly? Is the config file in the right place on disk? And so given that loose contract, there's a lot of effort to re require to keep everything in sync. If you're a developer, you may say, well, what's in this thing for me? Why do I care about GitOps or Kubernetes? Well, from that perspective, um, if you think about like the shipping analogy, when you go to FedEx or UPS, the first thing they're going to ask you to do is put all of your things in a box and tell us where you want it to go. So then you're kind of sealing the thing up. Whatever you put in there, we promise to ship to the other side. So that would be the container image component. I don't want to know about your .NET, your Ruby, your Node.js. It's too much to keep up with. And honestly, it's very fragile. If I change the server in some way, then you, the developer, is like, whoa, when did you decide to do that? Like, that wasn't the contract I had because it doesn't look like my laptop. So the container tries to eliminate that scenario by saying, look, you put everything in the box, and the only dependency you'll have on the other side is maybe the kernel and the network. So we try to reduce that footprint. And then the whole GitOps component. So we're not really talking about shipping containers via Gits, right? That's not it. We're going to push those things to central repositories. But what we are going to put in GitOps is like how you want that thing to run. 
How many copies of that? What version of that container do you want to run? So basically, we're trying to reduce the contract to you package it. You tell us how you want it to run. Either I automate this part or you can declare it to me and I'll make it so. So you're talking about there, you're talking about uh, shipping the container, building the container, right? And then what we still need to have this bit of configuration um, or sort of like how many copies, how many instances. Um, and this is, uh, it's, this is, I think, where that sort of that concept we've talked about or we mentioned if infrastructure as data and the configuration part comes in. And that's what we're talking about also needing to be sort of kept and held and housed. And that's a pretty new concept for uh, housed in Git uh, and controlled in Git, right? Uh, and that's a new concept, newer concept for most of the non-dev, the operations side of things. Yeah, it could be. You know, I think there's some people who, if you really squint at it, you know, putting that deploy script, you know, you see people do that, you know, oh, yeah, you yeah. got the deploy script and, and look, it's not data. It's very imperative in nature, but it was closer, right? Like, here's my app. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and build it using the build script. When you're finished, then use the deploy script. And in many ways that brought the contract a little closer. I mean, you would have to parse the script to figure out what the hell was going on. It was probably fragile. But what we're doing is kind of uplifting a lot of that information and turn it into something that's a little bit more structured because now we can build policies around it. We can scale it a little bit better. So I think that's the proper way to think about it. Okay. Uh, how do we do this with something? I mean, I mean, Kubernetes is obviously like exactly designed to do this, right? Um, but but how do you how do you do GitOps with something that's not Kubernetes? If, is that possible? Yeah. So the way to think about Kubernetes, we often refer to um, the Kubernetes resource model, the KRM. And so that part in many ways can be decoupled. Let's say you're not even interested in containers at all. Like that's just not something you're worried about. And if you think back to the early days of the web, right, you have a web browser, you have a web server, and in the middle, there's this HTTP thing to kind of deal with, you know, your client asking for resources on the other side, but it's largely transparent. But it turns out if you take that layer out, you can actually build other systems, right? You can build two services that are not even serving web pages can communicate to each other by repurposing those verbs to do something else. And then you have rest, right? You can build a bunch of systems. So if you take the KRM, out of Kubernetes, what do you have? Well, the fundamentals there are promise theory, right? You describe what you want and I'll make it happen. So what's the two big pieces here? One is the declarative, I have to have a declarative interface, you know, that YAML file. And we call those custom resource definitions. And then you have to have something that can read that and then actuate it, right? Like, hey, if I want you to create a pub sub message queue or something, you would declare, and this actually works, we call it the config connector in GCP. You can create a database, Cloud SQL, a Redis instance, but either way, you're saying, here's what I want that thing to be configured as, and then there's a loop. So you can do this with DNS entries if you really wanted to. You can do this, I don't know, your credit card payment. You can declare that there should be a payment of this amount to this other person and then maybe your interface looks like, you know, source account to target account. And as long as your little controller can read that information and make a transfer, then you can do it using the Kubernetes resource model. Now, there's an idea I can get behind. Financial management through CICD. That's <laughs> you got to take technical debt to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So what about for deploying updates? Is that ease the process for telling our, our clusters or telling our pods to update to latest versions or, or change configurations on the fly? How do we manage that state or that, that configuration? This is where things get tricky because in a perfect world, your controller will eventually resolve to the declared state that you want. So, you know, in the basics of Kubernetes, if you're talking about a single cluster and you deployed your app initially, right? So you created a deployment YAML file that said, I need three copies of this version of the container. You go off, there's nothing there, it creates them. Luckily, that particular controller knows how to do a very simple kind of rollout, like maybe delete a few at a time and add the new ones. And if that doesn't work, roll back. So a declarative workflow there would be, well, take the existing deployment artifact that you have and update just the version of the container. If this was a CICD flow, maybe there's a Git repository where you're storing this config and you check it out, you build a new container, and then whatever version you end up with, you patch the data object and you commit it back to Git or you apply it in line. But now you have this log of infrastructure changes, right? So it used to be this, now it's that. And now that controller has to do the harder work of taking that declared state of new version and doing everything possible to roll it out over time. And if that isn't working, then you're going to have to probably make a new commit with a new version that will eventually roll out. And that's where the gap is today. So when you hear GitOps, what a lot of people don't talk about though is if you're using a tool like Puppet, Chef, and Ansible, they're a little bit more mature in this regard. When you declare what you want to happen, there's typically some reporting infrastructure that says, you asked for this, but here's what's really happening. And that gives you a way of saying, oh, that is not what I wanted, or I didn't want that at all. Why is it even there? And so that's what's missing from the Kubernetes ecosystem, because to get that in the Kubernetes world, you would have to comb the Kubernetes API and take all the things it knows about, look into your various Git repositories, because typically there's not going to be just one, and try to determine, is this reflective of what's actually running? And that's the part where it's just not a solved problem yet. And with the effort to shift left and, and move a lot of these decisions and a lot of the responsibility of uh, how the application runs and the resources it needs, moving those decisions closer to development time, when, when I look at the three of us, Clayton is so far removed from, from Kubernetes world that, that he chooses to, to ignore it. Uh, I know just enough to, to get myself into trouble. And Ash has spent a lot of his time recently in the DevOps realm doing a lot of, of that work. Where do the responsibilities lie in learning and, and digesting enough of this information so that we can all contribute as we bring that, those, those uh, responsibilities into development? Yeah, so this is where I think, you know, I hear the term like DevOps, you know, I remember when that term first came out and there's this concept that, hey, you know, this is a shared responsibility and we should be working together. And look, that's true to an extent, but when you really break it down, I shouldn't have to learn how to provision the internet to get online. Like that's something a lot of people already know how to do. What I like is you go to Best Buy, you buy a cable modem, you screw it in the wall, and you're online, and then you can just start watching Netflix. That's it. 
Now, if you bring a DevOps mindset, they're like, Kelsey, ooh, silos are bad. <laughs> you should understand what a DMARC is. And let's go out into the street and remove that green cover. You see all the coax cable here? <laughs> Here's your crimper. We're going to cut the wire and we're going to crimp it back. And you're going to be like, uh, why are we doing this? Right? Isn't that what Comcast is for? Isn't that their responsibility? My interface to them is this coax cable on the wall. I actually am not interested in learning all the other stuff. I'm like, well, Kelsey, that's irresponsible of you. How, you know, you, the more you know about how the internet works at the bottom, you'll be able to troubleshoot it better. I was like, yeah, sure. I, I agree with that. But I think that's a little bit outside of my scope. And if I do want to go there, maybe I will. We make a mistake in, I guess, enterprises where we say we want people to learn all the things, right? Mm-hmm. And the truth is, it's only because we're leaking infrastructure. This is not by design, or maybe it is, but I think it's in t- not intentional. Who would want someone to have to learn Docker and Kubernetes just to deploy a standard app? We've been doing that for over 30 years. To deploy a standard app, I think the relationship should be, if I'm your platform team, I'm asking myself, what's the minimal amount of information that I need from you in order to keep your app running and redirect your logs and metrics to a place that you can go examine? So this is where we get to that pattern. I call it company.yaml, right? So if you work at Walmart, it'll be walmart.yaml or something like that. And then if I were to look in this YAML file, it wouldn't leak all the details about Kubernetes because most of the patterns you care about don't need to expose everything Kubernetes is capable of. So maybe it's like, um, what team are you on? Um, What version of this container do you want me to deploy? How many copies do you want? And what part of the world do you want it in? Maybe that's enough for me to say, I know where metrics go. I already know where logs go. And I know how to take this and turn it into five different Kubernetes configs to keep your app healthy and running with the best practices. When people don't have that, typically what we do in the name of self-service, you get a kubectl, you get a kubectl, you need some SSH, let's rub some SSH on your kubectl. (laughs) You got it from here. Oh yeah, take this TCP dump with you. And that mode as a developer, you're sitting here saying, yo, this is crazy, mm-hmm. right? That's like your language saying you need to understand the runtime and how it maps threads and all. Like, why do I need to learn that? What, that's what abstractions are supposed to prevent so I can move quickly. So I think as a platform team, we got to stop or prevent leaking infrastructure details up into the developer workflow. And then over time, have much better contracts about what I need from you in order to leverage the infrastructure. So in a similar, but maybe tangent vein, uh, last week in AWS uh, said Kubernetes value is in managing complex systems, yet virtually every tutorial sensibly uses single hello world uh, style applications. This tends to leave uh, Kubernetes viewed as being overly complicated. How do you think about bridging the divide? And I do, I do tend to agree. I, I've spent several weeks with these other two guys over here uh, trying to understand Kubernetes, and it was just so much effort to get anything done. And what seemed like, from from my developer uh, viewpoint, so little return on that investment. Is there a way to to bridge the divide to make Kubernetes more valuable and less complicated to users, or? Does it simply need to be abstracted as your previous uh, answer may have suggested? Yeah, I mean, it's like how many developers know how to make a processor? Silicon all the way through effect. 
very few people in the world, right, can do that. But they still can use them, right, because they're packaged by ARM or Intel or AMD. And so we got to think about who's packaging here. Right now, most people are taking Kubernetes and giving people the raw silicon and saying, we can make a processor together. And that's not what you are. So, they, so processors are very, very, very complex. But most people use them for very simple things, right? But it doesn't mean that the complexity isn't justified at that level. The thing Kubernetes tries to handle in order for an app to be easily run, like run this app and if a server dies, put it somewhere else. These are hard distributed systems problem. So we got to put all that logic, the act of scheduling, the act of preemption. These things are really, really, really hard problems. So Kubernetes reflects the ability to do that for almost any kind of application, not just maybe your simple application. So a lot of times when we introduce people to Kube, it's hard to make the jump from hello world to running something like Kafka that has a dependency on Zookeeper. and Because you'll get lost in either A, you don't know Kafka that well, and I'm going to lose you there and with all the networking stuff. So I think most people, um, it's hard to talk about infrastructure because people said the same thing about cloud. Oh, why is there a VPC? And what are these firewall rules? And what's a what's an IP? And what subnet? Mean? Like that's a lot to leak up. And we tried to get people vagrant to handle all of those VM complexities. I don't actually think it's that different. And honestly, Linux is far more complex than Kubernetes is. If you look at all the code in the kernel, storage drivers, memory management, process, it is far more complex than Kubernetes, except for now distros have softened the blow. Here's SSH, here's an init script. That's all you need to do. We're not quite there with Kubernetes. Now, to your point, if you are a platform team member, you probably need to learn Kubernetes, just like you had to learn Linux and everything else. If you are a person that is consuming infrastructure, then maybe if you don't have an operations or a platform team to give you a set of abstractions, this is where things like Cloud Foundry and OpenShift come in, right? They actually provide abstractions above Kubernetes. So you're interacting with something that feels more like Heroku than it does Kubernetes. That's always an option. Or you can go get a managed Kubernetes offering like GKE or AKS or EKS or something to that regard. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, I have some experience with a couple of my clients uh, working, working with this. And I'm wondering if some of the reason why we're seeing this sort of tension and, and bleed over is also from where the actual like adoption is happening. Um, so you have, you know, I'm seeing in plenty of uh, enterprises that, you know, they're, they, they may be moving from on-prem VMs to cloud VMs, right? Whereas like the dev team is like ready to spin up images and the dev team's like, well, I'm ready to have, I need to have something that I can run these. And the platform team is like, well, we're still trying to get there, right? So you kind of have, uh, and then you have also smaller shops where you have smaller uh, uh, teams where where you're just wearing more hats, right? You you just have to wear more hats, and that's just the way that it is. And so I wonder if like because what what it sounds like you're talking about is uh, which sounds fantastic, right? From a developer perspective, I, I I do the DevOps, I I enjoy it, I work with Kubernetes, but if I could just get someone else to like take care of that abstraction so I could get back to development, it would be really, really fantastic. 
we have a lot of maturity to do in this industry. You, you got to remember, a lot of people are just figuring this stuff out as they go. And the first thing that works is presented to the, to the company. A lot of this isn't designed, right? Like if you take this mentality to building houses, people are like, hey, I found something that we can put on top. What should we call it? <laughs> the roof. It's like, oh, yeah, it, that looks good up there. And then it rains one day. And it's like, yo, why are we all wet? It's like, I don't think that was the right thing to put on there. So they go online. Hey, where is the thing that prevents people from getting wet in the house? And they say, oh, no, you should be using wood. And it's like, oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't get the part about the shingles. We'll get there in the next iteration. <laughs> right. That's what a lot of people are doing right now. And it's not that no one knows this stuff. It's just that we've been piecing together so long that we haven't stopped to said, hold on, time out. What are we trying to build? We bought a lot of stuff. We've configured a lot of stuff. Frankly, we copied and pasted a lot of stuff. <laughs> yep. But no one really knows what were you trying to build? So if you step back and say, if I was going to be an internet service provider, what would the interface need to be to do this at scale? And if you're an infrastructure person, your developers are trying to write code. I, I've been a full-time developer. I'm, I'm sleep up light. Like, that new library that I imported, I don't know if it's going to hold up <laughs> under load. I, I think it's good, but I'm not sure. And I'm already worried about app infrastructure. Like, are my libraries going to do the right thing? Or is there going to be some security vulnerability? I don't have the mental capacity to think about that at every layer of the stack. If you knew how to do that, more power to you. But again, it, as a platform team person, if you stand back and ask what the interface should be, more than likely it will be check in your code, give me a little bit of metadata. And my goal is to make sure your app is running healthy and you can find diagnostic information over here. So do you think that, is it the cloud providers, is this their responsibility for, for developing that abstraction? One, and then, or is it the enterprises? Uh, the the platform teams themselves, uh, their their responsibility for sort of bringing that. Or and then the other thing is, if it is the cloud providers, how do you get the enterprises platform team to allow that abstraction to pass through the platform team to the developer? Because even where we we do have good abstractions that the cloud providers have provided, I've seen plenty of enterprises go ahead and abstract their own even more convoluted abstraction layers so that they can still have a control and a finger and uh, a pulse in what's going on. Yeah, it's definitely the cloud provider's responsibility to service their customers, right? So if you want email, you can fire up Gmail or Google Workspaces, right? Done. There's no spam assassin, post fix versus send mail. That's out. Boom. Create your email address. Off you go. And so that's like the extreme level when we all agree, right? It's just email, man, <laughs> right? Just send the email, get the email, read the email, delete the email. We're done. When you get to infrastructure, everybody wants to do whatever they want, right? Some people say, hey, man, I want to drive my tank. Like, well, we, we don't No, this is, this is the freeway, <laughs> asphalt, tires. We're good. No, 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 no. I have a tank. It's like, but dude... You don't have the right traction. This is going to end up bad, but I want to drive a tank. So I'm going to give someone money to let me drive my tank. So then we say, damn it, we got to support tanks. So we're going to have a special lane <laughs> on the freeway for tanks. Turns out everybody has a different style of tank. Some are small, some are big. 
So the enterprise is like, we have so much money, you're going to eventually do what we want. Or the typical pattern I see is make the new thing work the old way, right? Yeah. Oh, that, that serverless thing looks great. You mean to tell me you can scale horizontally as long as I make sure that I do a few things in the app? Okay, but I've been writing apps for 30 years. So how about this? This is the deal I make with you. You let me run WebLogic from 30 years ago <laughs> on Lambda and I'll give you triple. And you say, no, 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 no. That won't, that won't scale. And then, you know, maybe you call the right person and eventually you get a roadmap item that says Lambda shall support WebLogic. <laughs> and all of a sudden you were back to kind of where we're starting. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like to be pragmatic and fair, but this is how you get into this situation where App Engine, 10 years ago, Google Cloud, here's how you make apps. Focus on underneath, we had containers, Heroku, Cloud Foundry, but you have to make some trade-offs in how your app is modeled. Mm -hmm. So that way we can give you these benefits. And people looked at that and said, no, I want a virtual machine. So you get a virtual machine. So cloud providers have multiple offerings for this exact reason, because no one's going to settle on the same pattern or be willing to adjust what they're doing to take advantage of it. Yeah, it'd be nice if you could just, well, so like from a, from a developer's perspective, I'm sure, you know, DevOps has, has tons of reasons for, for uh, not wanting the single, single use fits everything. But I would, I would love just like, yeah, just deploy it. Just, I want, I want this to be served on the internet and I don't want to think about it. I just want it to work. It's coming. I, we're, we're getting closer, right? Because if you think about like a CDN, for images, mm -hmm. right? Back in the day, put it on FTP, do something weird, copy it around with rsync. Now it's just like CDN is taking that referral URL. I can serve it globally pretty fast. There are some other app tiers that I'm starting to see like the, if you think about some of those like JavaScript frameworks that are just like Vercel, for example, you write your code using one of the popular frameworks. They essentially just shove that across the web. Browser shows up, it gets the app fast. Everything happens client side. Mobile devices, right? These things. There are developers that are writing apps that get updated twice, three, four times a month to 100 million devices with no DevOps team to be found. That's what happens when we agree on some things. And I think that's going to come to compute side as well, at least be an option. And we've got another question on Twitch from A. Summers. To Kelsey's points about minimizing config for the application developers, what are your general guidelines on, I should create a CRD for this? I find that there's tension with developers not wanting to dig into the details and layers of magic being introduced that make things seem more complicated than they are. Yeah, so I think three letters that are missing, SLA, service level agreement. When you go to the airport and you buy your ticket, your contract, and they tell you that this flight's going to leave at one and it's going to land at four. And the whole experience from that point on is check in my bags, find my seat, and ideally, the ride is smooth because if not, that's a problem. I'm, I'm turbulent. We ain't going for this. It needs to be smooth. And I want to get off on time. And typically, when the airline is late, they apologize. And I think that is the SLA we come to expect from the aviation industry, right? We even have lounges where they give you food. They even give you food on some of the flights. And movies and internet access in the flight because they're so focused on the customer experience. All of this is complicated, right? Do all of this in a mail flying tube? This is crazy. But I don't have to think about that as a customer. 
When you start talking about CRDs, these are implementation details. I don't want an email from Delta telling me how they're going to outfit their planes with internet service. Like I, I, like maybe that might be cool to know, but that's not really what I'm interested in in my relationship with the airline. Would it be better to me troubleshooting network outages on flight? Yeah, probably, but that's part of their service. So as a platform person, when I think about a CRD, if I go to my dev team and say, hey, what's the problem? Yo, we want to do we want to be able to roll out our applications by going one zone at a time. And then when that zone is done, move to another zone and then to another region. And if this metric is too high, we want to roll back. So I noodle on it for a while and say, okay, I see what you want. How would you do it manually? Well, here's what we do today. So we understand the problem. Maybe we make a few trade-offs in the steps. Then I can go now to serialize our culture into Kubernetes by creating a control loop that says, if you give me the list of zones and what metric, then I will go and do all of the things for the developer. Since I'm in the customer service business, you need two lines of YAML, region list, metric to care about, and then that's it. You have no idea about how complex my control loop is. You don't know about that sliding window that I'm doing in the metric system to make sure it's not blipping on me. That's not your job. And I'm trying to provide you that level of detail and service so you can move quickly. So your relationship is the feedback loop. And if you're a developer, you may take a break from app code and say, you know what? I'm going to go pause, switch roles for a while, build this kind of interface for the whole team, and then get back to it. And that's a valid path as well. Yeah, so um, for GitOps and for Kubernetes, uh, we've even talked about a little bit of serverless. What resources would you direct people to uh, if they're looking to sort of get started in those things or trying to understand that more deeply? I think Weaveworks, you know, they're a nice startup. They have a lot of tools in this space. You know, Alexis, the founder of Weave, and if you don't know Alexis, he also invented or founded RapidMQ, big part of the CNCF movement. But they really coined this term GitOps, you know, maybe after it was being practiced by folks, but they have a lot of good resources and materials around this. I did a couple of talks with them at some of their virtual events. They have a tool called Flagger that really fills in the gaps in GitOps, some of the imperative things that I just mentioned that don't quite fit nicely in the GitOps model. Uh, Over at Google Cloud, we're also looking at things like the Config Connector, which actually uses... um, and we have a thing called config sync. What it does is it tries to use Kubernetes, um, a controller that can watch in number of repositories to keep your cluster in sync with what you've described there. And it gives you a way to model. Like if you have a hierarchy of clusters, you may say, hey, these service accounts, you know, these are things that people use to give identities to their apps. Well, these should all live in these eight different clusters. So if you take a look at those tools, now, one thing I'll warn you is that it's early days. We're like on year two of this whole GitOps practice. So what we're going to need is people who have experience with Puppet Chef and Ansible. Those are the people who I know get it. And they'll look at GitOps and say, huh, I see what you're trying to do. This is an improvement in some areas. It's a step back in others. And bring that experience to the table and just help kind of mature this thing up a little bit. So at this point in the show, I normally ask uh, our guests for advice on uh, leveling up their career. But we had a question from Twitter, uh, a Brian Lyles, that falls into that category. And it was actually a pretty good question. So 
if you were able to start your career all over again, what lessons have you learned that you would apply to your new career? What would you do or not do based on what you have seen? See, there's a lot of contentious things that until you get those things that you can say this. For example, titles don't matter. is only true to the person who has all the titles they ever wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of empathy required for some of this stuff. So some people will listen and say, Kelsey, you're only, yeah, but that's where I am in my career. So I can only give it to you from my personal perspective. Looking back, I can truly say that the tools don't matter because they won't be around long enough and you're going to outgrow them or you should evolve and grow. And when you do, it's going to be okay. So I remember when I started, I'm a Linux system administrator. I am a Red Hat Linux system administrator. And I was scoping my abilities down to the thing or tool in front of me versus focusing on the fundamentals. And if you, if you focus on the fundamentals and those skills, they transfer quite a bit. Titles are important. And when I say that, again, given my context and experience, you're going to work towards whatever the goals the companies put in front of you. So if going from an L1 to L2 means something at your company for money, respect, whatever it is, cool. You need to go do those things as you build up your career. But one thing I learned later in my career is that if I thought outside of the titles, I can actually make impact beyond what the company would ever ask of me, right? Very rarely has a company have ever asked me to go to the next level, right? If you operate within the HR box, you kind of stay in there and you can get a bit frustrated. But when you're not afraid to peek around the corners, and start learning about impact. Sometimes impact will come from things outside of your job description. We've all met those people or have once been those people who said, I didn't get any training on that. Therefore, I don't want to be involved in trying to figure that out. When I get some training, then I'll show up. And I think what I mean by title doesn't matter is that it shouldn't limit you. It shouldn't be the thing that defines who you are. It shouldn't define who, what your worth is. You got to go and try to create some space for yourself. The other thing that I think I learned is I used to be very nervous about switching companies too fast. Maybe you're at a company for only six months to a year and you're like, what is this going to look like on my resume? Zoom 15 years later, it represents a bunch of experience, hands-on experience, different challenges, being able to make adjustments because some companies reorg that much (laughs) and it feels like you're getting a new job all the time. So I would say I wouldn't be afraid of swapping careers because I've also seen people who took a different path. Some people who have been at the same company for 20 years and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes those people end up with 20 years of one-year experience because they haven't seen or gone outside of the box enough in their careers. So I think those would be the big things. Is like I'm investing in myself as much as I'm contributing to the company I'm currently employed at. And I think if I knew that earlier on, I might have did a few things a little different, but looking at where I am now, a little bit of survivor bias here, a little bit of luck here. Um, I'm glad I took the path that I took. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. That was one of the uh, one of the, your first point, or maybe second, was uh, something that I was just taught in the army was learn the job of the person to your left, learn the job of the person to your right. Because, well, in the army, it was because if they get shot, you got to do their job. But, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> hopefully, we don't get shot in this game. But you're right, though, right? When someone's out sick, you want you don't want to say that. Well, only Bob does deployment, so we gotta wait until tomorrow. Like, I'm if I'm your leader, I'm looking at you like, 
you've never taken the time to learn how to do what Bob does. Okay. We got to make some changes. Yeah. And then on the second one, yeah, I totally agree. Change jobs or, or change whatever, when it is appropriate for you. Don't, don't worry about, about how long you've been doing it. And in fact, getting started in the, in the tech world today, you almost have to change jobs at least once a year for the first few years, just to get that, that pay raise that, that you deserve for having the experience that you have. Yeah. My wife used to be very nervous. She, around that one year mark, she's like, do you, do you, do you still work there? What's going on? I was like, yeah, babe, I'm quitting. But I think after the three times, she just saw the paycheck increasing because it's something about getting your new set of skills, interviewing with a different company. And for some reason, I don't know why this is, but the place you work is hard for them to see value in something they already have versus a company's like, you would be a great addition to our team. (laughs) It's very different from just being a great addition to the existing team, but that's the way it works. Yep. Where can our listeners go to uh, follow you and sort of keep up with what you're working on? Uh, Twitter is kind of like my place to be. Um, I like to engage and, you know, my DMs are open. Don't abuse them, please. But I do take one-on-one time to like pick up the phone and talk to people. Sometimes I'll jump on a meet, but social media, Twitter, talk about tech, uh, a little bit about life and also interacting with people to help them out on their career journey. Excellent. Well, Kelsey, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. That was Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey is a seven-figure developer and principal engineer for Google Cloud. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. Catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 